Hello, and welcome back to the Audience Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Hewitt from Castos. In this episode, I'm joined by Ashley and Galen from the Bello Collective. The Bello Collective is a really popular online publication covering kind of all aspects of podcasting, a lot of kind of best of lists and a lot of curated content around other shows that people are putting out there. The Bello Collective is a really unique publication in this space and that they have a large contributor base and not just one or two people's voices. That's why I wanted to have Ashley and Galen on today to talk about how they manage this kind of community aspect and this almost crowdsourced content creation that they have here. We dive into that and a lot more in this episode. I hope you enjoy this episode with Ashley and Galen from the Bellow Collective. Ashley and Galen, in kind of your own words, can you give folks an idea of kind of where Bellow Collective tries to sit in the the podcasting, I'll say kind of education, updates, inspiration kind of ecosystem? So we are a publication, a digital publication and a newsletter. And our main mission is to amplify podcasters, especially independent voices, and provide resources for podcasters who are getting started to looking to grow, um, looking to find new approaches to making their work and also really carve out originally was carve out. And now I would say it's deepen and widen the, the space for criticism in the podcasting space. When the publication was started, we like, there was very little criticism and it was kind of all sort of ad hoc and the medium was quasi developed, but there were not a lot of people speaking about it and around it. And so that was the goal of the collective. And that continues to be our goal, as well as helping people to, you know, develop their own critical ears and to develop their own craft. And I'll add to that, you know, when we first started, which was in 2016, there were not a lot of ways to discover new podcasts. You didn't have the really robust interface that you have on Apple Podcasts or Pocket Casts or any of these other mechanisms where you had people who were curating and thinking about how to elevate those voices. And so Bellow Collective was really started as a way for this community of folks who knew about podcasts and were excited about podcasts and saw the potential in the medium to really have conversations about podcasting's potential and to share episodes and and to really look deeply at everything from someone, you know, this old idea of people podcasting in their garage or in their basement and really speaking to a small audience to networks like NPR who really had a lot of ownership in that space. And as the community has grown and there are more people who are talking about this, you know, we've been fortunate to continue to have a role in in elevating voices that people might not have heard about through more traditional means used the term community, uh, I think, before we started uh, recording to, to describe what Bellow is today. So it's not just a digital publication, but it's a community where there's kind of this one-to-many or many-to-many dialogue going on in your circles. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Because I think that's like the holy grail for a lot of us. <laughs> it's like we're doing a lot of this for an end goal of, of connection with people and for them connecting with each other in our world. I'd love to hear kind of how that morphed from just a publication. The publication was created by two women, Dana Gerber-Margie and Brittany Jesuit, who each had a newsletter that recommended podcasts for the recommended podcasts. And this was in 2016. There was, as Ashley said, not a ton of opportunity to discover podcasts outside of word of mouth. And they really had two of the first newsletters that were trying to surface podcasts. 
And they realized that they were each speaking to an audience, but they could do a lot more if they joined forces and built their audience together and also brought in other people. And so they evolved from having just these two wonderful newsletters to establishing the site and this publication, a static publication, as opposed to um, an inbox-based publication. And from there, the collective has grown. And we, I think one thing that sets us apart from some other publications is the range of voices. So we have different people who recommend in our newsletter and who write articles, um, whether that's a, on a one-time basis or throughout the course of our our lifetime as a publication, who all like different shows. And, you know, some people listen to fiction and some people listen to a lot of like the NPR shows and some people listen to more chat casts. And that enables us to talk to, I think, a much wider range of listeners and readers. And then we also have a Slack community where our writers and our members are able to hang out and talk. And that is really the sort of robust, active 24-7 space where our community is coming together. But I would say we're also, you know, I would say we also have a Twitter community and we also have our newsletter as a community. And these are the people that we're talking to. It's really exciting to be able to, you know, ask people in the newsletter, hey, this is what we're thinking about. This is an event we're going to. This is a playlist that we just published. Let us know, you know, are you going to be here? Or do you have a recommendation? Because Again, I think sometimes the recommendations can be rather one-sided where you go to a discover page, you go to a place and you are absorbing and finding out what other people are recommending. And then you as a listener also have all these wonderful recommendations and shows that you get. And so we really try to give opportunities for our readers to be able to recommend things to us that we can then pass on to other readers. Dialogue is very much the spirit of what Fellow is about. And it's, I think, folks who are regular readers of either the website or the newsletter know that when Galen and I approach that, it's it's very much with dialogue in mind. And we regularly invite people to offer that feedback. And, you know, to the point of our Slack community, I mean, it's it's certainly a bit of a family for me in that regard, and that we have these folks who are interacting and are passionate about the things that they're listening to, not just as a, a form of art, which I think we all agree podcasting is, but really what they're learning from that and how it has impacted their day-to-day lives. So there's very much a, an intentionality and a dialogue to what we're doing. Was it difficult when you were getting your Slack group started to kind of foster that communication? But I would guess based on what you just said about kind of discussion and dialogue being the cornerstone of a lot of what you do and it kind of being embedded in ecosystem and the and the listenership and the readership, that it was a pretty natural transition. Is that accurate? That's a great question. This is something going back to the intentionality of that community that we have talked about a lot. Initially with the original editors, uh, you know, Galen and I were there pretty early in the the origins of Bellow and now are the primary editors and, and owners of the publication. And as the community has evolved and grown and people have come in and people have left and, you know, as their lives change and their relationship to podcasting and audio changes, you know, we decided a few years ago to make sure that we had community guidelines that were in place for every new member and every new writer who joins. And we are pretty clear about the fact that our entire 
Slack community is off the record and that you have to have, if you if there's something that you would like to have on the record or maybe you're working on something and you'd like to take that information and share with your team outside of the community, that you get that in writing from the folks uh, that you're looking to share that information from. And we just found that that established a different level of trust and candor uh, for the community by having those guidelines in place. And so whenever someone joins a collective, you know, when we have a new member who supports us on Patreon at a specific level and they're invited to join the community, they agree to those community guidelines before they're actually invited in. And I think I've just personally found that that really inspires a level of trust that we might not have otherwise. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I think even now in 2020, a lot of people are hesitant about really sharing the good stuff, the the really kind of emotional connections or the things that create the emotional connections that we're all looking for. And so giving the the permission and, and kind of the the disclosure that everything you say here stays here uh, and and isn't shared outside, I think is really smart. I would love to hear a bit more about like kind of the nuts and bolts or maybe the lessons you've learned about kind of onboarding and managing expectations and, and really what the workflow looks like with all the different contributors you have to the publication. Because, I mean, that's a real project, I'm sure. Uh, Galen, has that has that been hard to kind of get working smoothly to have so many people contributing to kind of one voice? Yeah. I mean, that's a constant conversation that we have is who is contributing? How can we make sure that our contributors remain engaged, that we are always keeping that dialogue open as we've talked about and keeping that community active and open? I would say it's evolved um, over the time. It's interesting having gone from starting as a writer, like Ashley and I joined the collective and began writing really at its its inception. And so going from there to being an editor and seeing it evolve from one or two articles to this robust site, we, like Ashley said, part of that evolution has been writing, you know, writer guidelines and putting in place a contract and making sure that we are setting up the expectations as much as possible at the beginning of this is the timeline, this is what our process looks like, this is what it means to pitch. We have a pretty robust editing process. So, you know, making sure people know we're going to be going through multiple drafts and just making sure that people understand as much as possible at the beginning what we look for in an article um, and what the process is going to look like for them. And we, going back to the Slack community, we try as much as possible to give people different ways to pitch articles or pitch series and, you know, have spaces even within that community where there's sort of a a separate space for writers to be talking about ideas or articles they want to see. We have also put in place um, various tracking mechanisms. Um, (laughs) So, you know, making sure that that because people come and go, because people aren't necessarily always contributing to every newsletter, for example, we want to make sure that there's consistency across the, the newsletter, that we're not recommending the same show over and over because somebody might really love that show and want to recommend it all the time. And like, we have to hold ourselves back, you know, Ashley and I as contributors in that as well. And making sure that, you know, we are maintaining the kind of diversity, making sure we, you know, have an idea of what countries are the are the podcasts that we're recommending coming from. Are we accidentally skewing towards having, you know, way more US shows, even though we have mostly US writers than than we would really like to have, and always kind of encouraging people. And sometimes that's saying this newsletter is going to be focused on this one type of show, or we're going to do sort of a theme for a holiday that's happening or something. 
And speaking of holidays, I mean, we have a couple of events and and annual moments in our life as a publication. One of those is the 100 list, which is 100 outstanding podcast episodes, which we publish every year. And we have since the first year, 2016. And so we always have that as kind of a moment to look forward to and a sort of exciting moment where we are all coming together and not just building this publication that goes out, you know, the newsletter every other week or these specific articles, but something that everybody is coming together to create. And then we have a holiday that the collective invented a few years ago where we celebrate that's specifically about giving back to the community, you know, and rating your favorite shows and reviewing your favorite shows and talking about how you can donate and all of those things. And that's another kind of nice moment where where we can all remember why we're doing what we're doing. I think something, you know, Galen said there, it's important for us in talking with folks who are associated with the collective or who read our website or our newsletter, we view ourselves as active participants in the shows that we love. And that if we love these shows and if we find value in the programming, then it's our job to think of ways to support them. And that can be through, you know, a financial donation, but that can also be through a good review so that other folks help find them. Or, you know, when you're in, in positions to be able to recommend them to other people that you do that. So we really try try and, and activate our listeners to be active listeners in the in the process. You mentioned uh, kind of diversity and inclusion and kind of being a, an open publication that welcomes certainly and encourages participation from all nationalities and walks of life and backgrounds. I'm surprised just in podcasting in general, how I'll say how poorly this is performed uh, in podcasting that, you know, gender and race and nationality and creed and religion. And I know this is something that nobody's supposed to talk about, but I think, you know, right now we all kind of have to be, especially is, is why do you think that in a medium like podcasting that is so accessible to so many people that it's not more diverse kind of already? I think that a sort of quote unquote democratic open access medium like this without really intentional actions can often just replicate the inequalities that exist elsewhere. And I think that's kind of the base of it. I think podcasting has sort of two ancestral legacies or two major ancestral legacies. And one of them is public radio and one of them is blogging. And the public radio ancestral legacy, you know, is one of traditional media. And so that already is going to be dominated by certain voices. And I think the blogging side, there's the same kind of problem that that there always is of whose voices then get recognized and whose voices get lifted up and who's in community with whom. And are we seeing those communities connecting or are they sort of talking to themselves? And when you, I mean, when you look at major media institutions who could be or are covering this topic, you know, there is a diversity problem there as well. And so the people who are assigning these stories may not be looking in the same places that we try to, to try and find the next great profile. I think that's something that we've been really proud of. You know, we had in our earliest days, we had an interview with the anonymous uh, Breakmaster Cylinder and found a really fun way to be able to interview them. Uh, we recently had a, a great profile on Caitlin Prest and her new network Mermaid Palace and we also recently had a, a really wonderful profile with Avery Truffleman. And so we're always looking for for the next voice, someone who's doing something unique. And we're excited about finding those and discovering them and sharing them with other people. 
That's exactly it. I think from my perspective, looking at all my show and your shows and everybody out there is is like, quote, anybody can make it, right? And podcasting is you don't have to know somebody. You don't have to go to the best college. You don't have to be from anywhere. If you make the best content, the chances are you're going to be successful. And that's what's really great. And so I think it gives... I hope that it gives a lot of people hope that, you know, they can kind of break in and make it, if you will, in the medium. And that's super cool because I think, yeah, by its nature, it is really accessible, which is great if more of that kind of indie blog spirit wins through. (laughs) The reason why we are attracted to those voices are these are often people who are also making audio in unconventional ways and situations. And this was part of the inspiration for why we created our, our podcast 101 section, which really looks at how to make a podcast from a technical perspective, how to think about it from a business perspective. And then as you are ready to launch your podcast, like how do you make sure that you're finding and connecting with your audiences and making good decisions in that post-launch space? And so that's another section that we've really intentionally built out to help be a resource for folks who just don't have traditional structures or who are thinking about audio that looks a little unconventional. One thing that I, I think contributes a lot to people being successful uh, and, and making it and being a full-time podcaster, which I think is the dream of a lot of us, is finding a way to to monetize their content or their brand, if you will, in some way that's authentic and aligns with their values. You all had a really great piece talking about when we make art and money. So this like fusion or this balance of like podcasting as a passion and a, a side hustle or a way to earn money. I'd love to hear kind of what you've seen and kind of what you've seen from the community around this, uh, because I think it's something a lot of people struggle with internally, at least. Yeah, I mean, it is a challenge. I think that's not a challenge that's entirely unique to podcasting. I think that's that's sort of important to say is that, you know, there's always the conflict when you're trying to make something artistic between, you know, how do you make what you really want to make and how do you make something that's going to succeed in the market? And I think that's why a lot of people, you know, have day jobs and <laughs> are making work on the side, which to be fair, like, I think is completely valid. I mean, I have a day job. Bellow is not my job. And I think that that's a completely understandable and, and fair way to be doing things. I don't know. I mean, I think it's been interesting for me to see all of the different ways that people approach this problem within the space, both from an individual perspective and uh, the kind of tools that are out there, whether they are something like a Patreon or, you know, different tipping functions and membership functions, whether that's ads, you know, whether that's um, grants and, and, Uh, connecting with institutions and and sort of joining together in that way. I don't know if it's a problem that can really be totally solved. I think it's going to be an eternal struggle that everyone Mm. finds in their own way. It's also been interesting for me to see the way that this happens on the individual level in terms of, for example, having a day job and then creating a podcast on the side that you're not monetizing or trying to monetize in, in a much more limited way. And then the way that that happens on the larger scale with something like pre-Spotify, Gimlet, having Gimlet Creative, and then which made branded content, and Gimlet Studios, which creates shows that are not branded. And I think that happens all over the place where individuals are finding a way to do work that supplements that paid work that's maybe not their heart's desire, that supplements the work that is their heart's desire. And then on the larger scale, doing the same thing. And that is a model that I have seen that I think is successful financially and for many people successful sort of spiritually and emotionally as well. 
And I think we support people who want to make podcasts or audio that isn't intended to be funded or isn't intended to make money. I think we talk with a lot of folks who maybe have, to Galen's point, day jobs in podcasting or audio, but who also make this separate thing that may be a very experimental form of audio that are just completely for themselves or for their friends and their family and and folks who are interested in unconventional audio. I think Sarah Geis had a, a really great experiment. It was called Audio Playground. And it was really just this project that encouraged people to go out and practice making sounds. And she would offer these prompts. And I don't think for most people that those prompts or the, the audio that they collected were necessarily intended to end up anywhere. It was really about the action of going out and collecting these great pieces of audio and looking at sound in a different way, telling a story in a different way, and making that for themselves and for others. We've talked about kind of doing what you love and making the content that you want to make and juxtaposing that or are you contrasting that against making money and doing this as a full-time job? Do you think that that is a different balance that we have to try to strike in podcasting versus, say, blogging or YouTube channeling and why? Like, do you think it's a unique problem to podcasting or can a blogger write whatever they want and people will come and read it and they can make money on ads or product placement or whatever? I think blogging is much easier. Blogging has a much lower barrier to entry. It always, I always sort of push back against the like, there's such a low barrier to entry to podcasting because it takes a lot of time. It takes technical know-how. It takes resources. I think the real barrier, the lowest aspect of the barrier to entry to podcasting is that, you know, if you are able to speak, you know, you speak, it's not like writing. It is something that we are all doing all the time. And blogging, I think, again, like in certain ways has a much lower barrier entry. The technical skill is much lower. The sort of different pieces, you don't have to go over here for hosting, over there to get a mic and, you know, here to figure out how to use Squadcast and everything. You can just go to Medium or WordPress and, you know, set it up much more easily. But I think what is interesting about podcasting is that um, it's so much easier to connect to an audience. And people spend so much time, if they are podcast listeners, often listening to podcasts. And there is a lot of content out there, but generally any individual show, it takes a long time to to sort of rack up X many episodes. And so I think that's something that's different about podcasting. I don't think it's such a big difference in terms of like, how do we balance making work that's meaningful and being able to make a living. I think that's an issue that's very much um, a multidisciplinary issue. I 100% agree. Galen, you put that so eloquently that there may, I think because we are having this moment where people are really discovering podcasts at a mass scale, there may be additional pressure to monetize that or to feel like there are certain markers of success that by not achieving those, you haven't achieved success. And I think, you know, we, that's something we really try. We are not listening for podcasts that have perfect sound. A lot of our favorite shows don't. And I think we want to celebrate the fact that people are making these sometimes with limited knowledge, but always with interesting stories. Yeah. I think one thing that we see a lot uh, along those lines is that the benchmark for success, if you're just talking about downloads, is is very different for every podcast and every audience they're talking to and kind of what the, the purpose of their show is. And and I think if we all give ourselves a little bit of grace there to say, like, I am not Joe Rogan, I'm never going to be Joe Rogan, I'm never going to have a million downloads an episode, but I could still have a very successful podcast for myself and kind of serve my audience and give them what they're looking for, even if my audience is only a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand people, you know, I can still be very successful for myself 
in that and maybe not in abstract terms, kind of relative to some other podcasters. But I think that's important for folks to realize, especially if you look at across different genres and for different purposes and, and different audience, audience types. I love that, Craig, from your mouth to listeners' ears. Yeah, and I like I, I'm not I'm not the first to make this idea up, but I think it's important in terms of people who are listening and are creating their own show in whatever stage, whether they've just come up with the idea or whether they've been making it for five years. I think it's worthwhile to kind of introspect and interrogate for yourself. What does success mean? Does that mean I have a hundred listeners a you know an episode? Does it mean I get retweeted by one of my heroes? Does it mean, you know, I put out 10 episodes this year? And I think that does look really different for everybody. And obviously, for some people, that is I have huge numbers, or I am able to make a full time living on this, or I'm able to pay for hosting. And I don't think there's any single marker of success that is the correct one or that anybody should be necessarily aspiring to, which I think in podcasting, like in any creative medium, again, can be easy to lose sight of, you know, Uh, especially when you see your favorite podcasters out there hitting milestones and or your friend's podcast, you know, and feel like, oh, is that what I should be doing? Yeah, I, I tell you, I'll I'll stop doing this when I don't enjoy it. But for the, for the moment, <laughs> uh, I'm having a blast. And yeah, I mean, we have a very different metric for success here than I think a lot of people. And that's cool. So I don't really look at our numbers that much because I hear from our customers and our audience members. Wow, I loved that last episode. This thing you were talking about was really interesting. We have a Facebook group where we kind of get this dialogue. And and as long as I'm hearing that, I'm great. I'll hop on the mic once or twice a week and and chat with folks like y'all if it's serving our audience, because that's, I mean, for me, that's the metric. That, you know, Craig, that's so important because you know exactly who it is you're trying to reach. And when we talk with often new producers or people who are thinking about making their podcast for the first time, they're like, we ask who your audience is and they say, it's everybody. I want everybody to listen to this. And if you're making a podcast for everybody, you're making a podcast for nobody. I, I think a lot about um, Stephen King in his book on writing talked about his ideal reader and it was his wife. And he could imagine how he wanted his wife to feel when she would read a certain passage. And if if he didn't see that reaction or he, he couldn't guess that she would have that reaction, he knew he had to go back and revisit it. And so I think for shows, thinking about who's listening, who's on the other end of the head of the headphones, of the earbuds, and what is their reaction to what you're saying and who are you speaking to, I think that makes ultimately for a much sharper podcast or a much sharper piece of audio because you know who you're talking to and you know what they're looking for. I've not heard that story. I love it though, because yeah, we, we talk a lot about audience personas and yeah, give them a name and you know, a gender and a location and age and pains and aspirations and stuff like that. And yeah, I think if you can do that, then it makes a lot of those decisions like you're talking about a lot easier. That's cool. I have one last question, and this is a total kind of uh, geeky left brain question, but I think folks might find it interesting, is um, your website is a, a, a publication, so I think it's rather natural that it's based on Medium. But um, I think uh, these days, at least, we don't see a lot of entire websites on Medium. I would love to hear kind of your experience about kind of the site running on Medium and what you what you like and what you don't like. I think, you know, a lot of people use WordPress and Squarespace and places like that, but I haven't run across like an entire site on Medium in a while. So I'd love to hear kind of your impression of it at this point. 
You know, Greg, this has been a bit of a journey for us. Um, (laughs) (laughs) We originally, as a publication, started on WordPress and um, moved the site pretty quickly over to Medium. And part of, of our thinking around that is that it had a pretty clear interface. We didn't have to maintain the parts of a site like security or worrying about uh, whether we'd had the latest patch or update or things like that. And it made it pretty easy for us to work with writers who were submitting their work as well. We've been able to use the the template for Medium to really create an aesthetic that we feel comfortable with and our navigation we've customized and things like that. But I think that we see that there are some drawbacks to that too. You know, we feel that sometimes maybe we're not easily found. Like medium can feel a little bit like a, a walled garden. I don't think it comes up quite as easily in, in a lot of search results and things like that. And so those are all things that we're taking into consideration as we look around the next corner of where where we go next from a platform perspective. But really, you know, it's it's Galen and I who are managing the site from both an editorial, a technical. We are also writers ourselves. And so we have a, a lot of hands-on work that we do elsewhere where having this technical aspect for right now anyway, having that coming off of our plates is is really helpful. Yeah, I love the concept of Medium. I know I feel old. A couple of years ago, it, it was a lot hotter, I would say, and a lot more interesting. A lot of people were publishing stuff first there. And I think that's almost a little like podcasting, right? Like there's one place or two places where you can go to get a bunch of different information. And I think that's really... That would be really nice if that's where that's kind of how things were structured in terms of blog content, because the discoverability is just so rich there. Instead of everything being siloed into everybody's domains and individual websites, if you just have a medium publication and it's all there, then people can find you much more easily. I don't feel like it's quite worked out from their end lately, at least. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Like we used to have our patron or our member program through Medium. And then when they really transitioned that experience to being more about being a Medium subscriber, we transitioned to Patreon. And I think we've enjoyed Patreon because there's a a layer of management and communication that we can have with our members in a way that we couldn't before with Medium. But it is another platform. And we went through the process of having to ask our members to make that transition with us. And, you know, we were fortunate that that for the most part, they did. There are other things that we're looking at. Like we just got a notice the other day that Medium is launching a newsletter feature. And, you know, we're evaluating that because we pay MailChimp fees. MailChimp is is who we use um, to send emails through. And like, is this a way to really unify those systems? And then, you know, this week we had a newsletter, or I'm sorry, an article that we collected 21 podcasts that help Uh, someone approached conversations around race and racism, particularly anti-Black racism in America. And it's it's been a very successful list for us. And we were really proud to be able to to get that up and have it as a resource for people. And we noticed that Medium had featured it to be selected on their front page. So we're, we're monitoring what that means for us and to have this additional element where when we have something that strikes the right chord with readers, uh, that Medium is there to help us amplify that as well. Interesting. Uh, Galen and Ashley, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much for coming on and sharing kind of what you all have been through at Bello Collective and what you're doing to help the community. It's really awesome to hear. For folks who want to kind of learn more and check out all of your great stuff, where is the best place to connect? 
That would be at bellowcollective.com. And if folks are launching new shows, we highly recommend that you send them to us. Our email address is editor at at bellowcollective.com. And we take all of those shows, we share them with our writers, and they uh, have a chance to review them and decide if they want to write about them in our newsletter. Yeah. And you can also connect with us uh, on Twitter. We're at Bellow Collective. And like Ashley said, on our site, you can find uh, how to write for us, pitch us articles. You can find how to submit your show um, as well as how to sign up for the newsletter. Awesome. Galen and Ashley, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Craig. 